0: Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Well, hello, Emmanuel Faith. My name's Ryan. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's just such a joy to have you with us. If you're joining us online, special welcome to you also. Hey, it was a, a, a little while back where my family and I, we were at the uh, wild animal park, er um, Safari park, sorry. Um, and uh, we were at the tiger exhibit and I just, I love watching the tigers. Sometimes they, they have a unique ability to just hide out and they're hard to see, better than it used to be, for sure, when they were all spread out. But, but at times they're, they're sort of hiding in the grass. But this time there was a tiger that was just pacing back and forth, right in front of that mirror. And the tiger had that look on his face like, I'm an apex predator and you should be really grateful for that, not mere that little window that's there that you are looking through at me, right? Anybody ever been there when they're doing that? There's, there's actually a word for what they're doing. It's called zoocosis, or, or the technical term is stereotypies. And it's actually the tiger that's going a little bit crazy because he's in captivity. Now, here's the thing. The Wild Animal Park, Safari Park, does a phenomenal job creating awesome habitats for animals. They do do an amazing job. Awesome. But they create habitats for the tiger, but the tiger wasn't created for that habitat. The the tiger was designed for something else. And so they, they they start to pace a little bit. And I've wondered do we as human beings do the same thing? Like is, like, is part of our rise in anxiety because we're living a life that we've designed, but not one that we're designed for? Like, is, is part of our, our rise that we see to upticks in mental health issues? Is it because we're, we're living a life that we've designed, but not one that we've designed for? If you're wondering, is Ryan gonna pace back and forth this entire <laughs> message? No, I promise you I'm... Not in the modern age, we have seen the the rise of the capital S self it's risen to new and greater places than it had ever risen before. It started with Rene Descartes' quip, I think therefore I am, that really gave language to that time and date to sort of put the eye on the map. But we as, um, as, as Americans, as Westerners, we have taken this pacing of the capital S self to new and greater heights. Before we blame the French philosophers, we should probably acknowledge that we are the generation that created the backwards facing camera on the iPhone and the selfie stick. Thank you very much. And I think you can see this, this love of self that is reflected even in like the TV shows that we watch now. Think back just a a number of decades ago. Some of the most famous shows were shows like like Happy Days and Full House and Friends. And they were all shows about finding your part in the greater whole. Now we have shows like The Voice or American Idol that it's like, look at me. Or or shows like The Kardashians where it's like, look at me. Or shows where, I mean, like we could go through just a litany of other shows. But but, but like what about shows like uh, The Real Housewives of... I don't know what season they're on right now. Ramona? Uh, Like, (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. But I just wonder if this like love of self is one of the things that's just causing us to pace back and forth living a life that we've designed, but not one that we were designed for. Did you know that in a survey done recently of 10 to 12 year olds, One of their life's greatest goals, 40% of them said they had it as a life value to be famous. That's the capital S self on display. In his great book, You Are Not Your Own, author Alan Noble wrote, everyone is on on their own private journey of self-discovery and self-expression. So at times, modern life feels like billions of people in the same room shouting their own name so that everyone else knows they exist and who they are, which is a fairly accurate description of social media. All the while, our anxiety continues to rise, and we don't know why. I would suggest that we are living a life we've designed, but not one that we're designed for. This pacing back and forth with proverbial selfie stick in hand is not what you or I were designed for. And maybe, just maybe, there's a way out of this zoo that we've created. Maybe, just maybe, there's more freedom, more joy, more abundance than we ever could have imagined. Last week, we talked about this idea of becoming and becoming the kinds of people God has invited us to become. And now we're gonna see John the Baptist jump onto the scene in John's gospel. He was alluded to in the first portion of chapter one. Now he's gonna come on the scene front and center. If you have your Bible, would you open with me to John chapter one? We're gonna start in verse 19 today. If you're new with us, we're in a journey. We're gonna do 44 messages through the gospel of John over the next year plus. I am so excited, so excited. And we begin by talking about John the Baptist, who's one of the human witnesses of the gospel. And what we see is that human witnesses matter. They're the lines upon which the testimony of God's divine son, Jesus, travel. So Israel at this point in their story is waiting. They're waiting for their Messiah to come on to the scene. They're holding out hope because God has promised that he would deliver. Chapter 1, verse 19. Are you there? Here we go. It says this. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Or you maybe even could read it, who do you think you are? see, John's under investigation by the religious authorities of his day. They're responsible for, for keeping orthodoxy and keeping things pure. And John is going against the grain. He's in the middle of nowhere. He's 20 plus miles outside of the holy city of Jerusalem. And he's starting to gain a following. His Twitter profile is blowing up. And so this is John's opportunity to grab the spotlight and to seize his 15 minutes of fame and make the most of it. He's asked this question, who are you? Who are you? It's one of the most important questions you'll ever be asked and that you'll ever have to answer. I mean, think about all the different ways that John could have answered this. He could have said, I- I'm John. I'm the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. He could have said, I- I'm John. I was the one announced by an angel and named by an angel. He could have said, I'm John. I'm of the priestly line. He could have said, I'm John, lover of the outdoors. <laughs> Could have said a lot of things. Uh, so could you. So how do you answer that question? Who are you? Who are you? I mean, oftentimes we start with what we do, right? I, I'm, I'm a I'm a pastor. Maybe I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a Padre fan. Please keep hitting the ball like you did last night. Please. <laughs> like I, I'm a I'm a I'm a lover of the outdoors, just like John. I mean. Who are you? See, that question gets to the core of your identity. And it's one of the most important questions you'll ever have to answer. I love the way that Tim Keller put it when he wrote about our identity. And he said, our identity is our sense of self and self-worth. It's our core trust and our source of value and recognition. It's whatever we look to as the ultimate source of our security and worth. Now that makes answering that question, who am I? Really, really important, does it not? And listen to the way that John answers. He's asked, who are you? And listen to what he says. He confessed and he did not deny, but he confessed, I am what? Not, Not, which wasn't the question, but I am not the Christ. I'm not the Christ is his way of of saying, I'm not the savior. I'm not the one you're hoping for. If your anticipation was was that I was gonna be the Messiah that was gonna come in and free Israel, I am not. And at this point, John ditches his opportunity to seize his 15 minutes of fame. He could have maybe created like a, a camel uh, skin line of clothing, or he could have packaged those locusts that he was eating and was like, this is a great protein substitute, right? Like he could have, he could have done all that, and he doesn't. He begins with, I am Not. Which is really, really interesting because throughout John's gospel, John is going to organize his gospel account of the life of Jesus around seven I am statements Jesus makes. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. But the very first I am in John's gospel is I am not. I am not. And oh my goodness, friends. There is so much freedom in saying, I am not. I mean, when you are able to declare, I am not, there's just a sense of weight that's released from your shoulders. In fact, it's too good for just me to say it alone. I think we should probably just say it together. I am not. Let's just say it again. I am not. And what John's doing is he's teaching us that our importance must be released if Jesus is to be received. Because when we're walking around selfie stick in hand, this is all about me. This is about what I do. And we're pacing back and forth. We have an inability at that point to really truly receive Jesus. John will go on to say later on in his ministry, he, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. And I think for us to really encounter Jesus, we have to come to terms with the fact that we are not the answer to the world's problems. Let me say it even more personally for, for you and for me. You aren't the answer to your own problems. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And see, when you release your need for importance or to be the answer, you're actually positioned when you're pointing to Jesus to receive what he is pouring out. As I was studying, I had this picture of John the Baptist. And I think that John the Baptist is the functional equivalent of Scottie Pippin. Like, here's the deal with Scottie. Like Scotty Pippen was, was a really good player, um, but he was not the star. Like, Scottie Pippen is not the reason that the Bulls won six championships. Who is? Michael Jordan is the GOAT, the greatest of all time. He's the reason that they won six championships. Scotty played a little part, but without Michael, they don't win any. And I think John the Baptist is your Scotty Pippin of gospel ministry. He's the one pointing to the goat. The goat's name is Jesus. Actually, he's the lamb of God. We'll get there in just a second. But he's the one who's pointing to the great I am. He's the supporting cast coming alongside of the star from the very beginning, his ministry is pointing to Jesus. And in his pointing to Jesus, he starts receiving what Jesus is pouring out. And so do we see the life, true life, can be received when I am not meets the great I am. When I am not meets the great I am. And there's so much freedom there, you guys the freedom of the seduction of fame or notoriety, the, the freedom from the tyranny of comparison and jealousy, the delusion of self-deception, the never-ending scramble to continually improve. If you live in a space where the expectation is continual up and to the right, year after year after year, how good does it feel to say, I am not? Amen. I am not the need to protect our fragile ego. I am not. See, when you are not, or when you know you're not, because you're not, when you know you're not, the pressure's off. The pressure is off. But I love that the religious authorities are like, Yeah, that's good, but uh, like, who are you? So they asked him, Well, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And notice his answers start getting a bit more terse as we go on. He goes, no, no, uh, I am not. The first question about him being Elijah is really, really interesting because God's people had this expectation that Elijah would come before the great day of the Lord. They had that expectation because the prophet Malachi said, and Elijah will come before the great day of the Lord. In in fact, at, at the Jewish festival of Passover, they leave an open seat just in case Elijah shows up. What's fascinating about John saying, no, I am not Elijah, is that Jesus, on two different occasions, says that John the Baptist is the Elijah who was to come. I mean, listen to one of them. It says, for all the prophets, the law prophesied until John, but if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. So John's asked, are you Elijah? And he goes, no. And Jesus asked, was he Elijah? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> so who's right? Don't answer that. Just, just give me a second. Let me teach you a powerful principle of hermeneutics. Always side with Jesus. <laughs> okay. Okay. So who's right? Jesus, yeah, and I actually don't have too much trouble reconciling these two different views of who John is because humble followers of Jesus will oftentimes have a hard time reconciling who they are in God's eyes. They'll have a hard time seeing the kind of impact that they are making. And it seems like John struggled with that. So John adequately establishes who he's not and listen to what they say, verse 22. So they said to him, who are you? Because this is getting a bit laborious, John. We need to give an answer to the people who sent us because they're really powerful and we don't want to make them upset. That's my paraphrase, okay? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he answers, verse 23, and he says, okay, fine. Now that we've established I am not, I am. I am. Now, at this point, I think many of us would be on board with with John's statement. Um, I am not, but we'd probably leave it there because we would want, we've had something dancing in the back of our head that says, "Well, well, well, um, it's not about me. It's all about God." And is that true? Yeah, it is. It's all about God. But as we're going to see, knowing God is about knowing Him in relationship to knowing ourselves. Like if you don't know who you are, you will never adequately know who God is. Listen to the way that um, author David G. Benner put it. He said, Christian spirituality involves a transformation of the self that occurs when God and self are both deeply known. Both, God and self. Or if you're going, well, who is David G. Benner? Like, Ryan, give me somebody more reputable. Okay, fine. John Calvin said... <laughs> Nearly the whole of sacred doctrine consists in these two parts. Knowledge of God and knowledge of our what? Of ourselves. Knowing God and knowing self are interdependent. We come to know God by looking at God, yes, but then looking at us. And then looking at God and then looking at ourselves. Looking on repeat over and over and over. And that's exactly what John's going to do here. This all falls under the banner of I am not. But then he starts to go, in light of that, let me tell you how I'm living in this world. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the, where? In the wilderness. wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah has said. See, See, here's the beauty of this. John knows I am not the logos. I am not the word but I have this beautiful opportunity to use my words to point to the one true living word. I get the chance to talk about him, to point to him, to tell others about him. And when we embrace the I am not life, we are free to raise our voice and point to Jesus. See, when we, when we know that we're not, we can point to the one who is. No selfie stick in hand, right? It's all about him. I love that John quotes uh, from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, and he says two things. One, he says that he's a voice in the wilderness, and he is. 20 plus miles outside of Jerusalem, many people think that John the Baptist was part of the Essene community that was responsible for creating the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found a while back. They think that he was a part of the separatist community where where they essentially said there's too much corruption going on in the temple, and so we're going to remove ourselves from that space. And I love that John is in the wilderness finding his voice. Because I think there's something to be said about removing ourselves from just the chaos and the noise and the hustle and the bustle of our everyday lives. That sometimes you need to get quiet and silent before you have something substantial to say. Sometimes you need to remove yourself from all of the chaos in order to get clarity about what's going on. That's exactly what John does. But here's the second thing he says. He says, make straight. As if to say the path is what? It's crooked. It's crooked. It's corrupt. So John's calling people to repentance. He's calling people to confession. He is making statements that are not popular. Even though he's gaining a following, he will eventually lose his head. He's saying things that people aren't going to like. And it's all built on this, I am not. Therefore, I am willing to say things that at some point will make me unpopular. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Galatia when he said, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to win the approval of man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not. Not, I might not, or or, or I could be if I tried really hard. He said, if I'm seeking the approval of people, I am not a servant of Christ. So let me ask you, under this banner of I am not, have you come to terms with the fact that when you raise your voice, you may not always make friends? You may not always have the applause of people. How do you feel about that? Here's what I found. During during the COVID season, I found this is just for me, that I didn't know how much I cared about the approval of people until I didn't have the approval of people. It's so easy to think you don't care about people's approval when you have people's approval. But when at any given point, it felt like roughly half of the people in our church were adamantly against me, I really had to go back and wrestle with, God, I feel like you've want to do some work in my heart around this seeking approval of people. Turns out I actually do care about what you think about me. And I'm working on that with God because I I don't want to live in that space. But my guess is that there's some people you're surrounded by also, maybe at work or in your family or in your neighborhood. There's some people you're probably surrounded by also, and, and deep down you actually do long for their approval, and maybe just maybe it prevents you from raising your voice. See, see, John's outside of the system. He's speaking truth to people who are in positions of power and when you know that you are not, here's the freedom, you guys. When you know that you are not, your identity can remain untouched even when you're rejected by the masses. Here's the second affirmation John gives. He says now, and says now they've been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him, "Then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you don't know. So John affirms, I'm baptizing. I'm I'm washing people with water. It's a symbol of spiritual cleansing. And if John was in fact part of the Essene community, they would have done this two times every single day as a way to repent of their sin and bring their life pure before God. Um, In fact, in that Essene community where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they had a number of different mikvahs which were designed for ceremonial washing and cleansing, a way to do baptisms. And John is just simply carrying this idea into the Jordan River. People are being baptized as as a repentance of sin. But notice what John does. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm baptizing with water, but there's someone here, someone among us now who's gonna do way more than baptize with water. This is a symbol, but there's one standing here who actually has power. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, not just with water. And I think what John is saying to people who long to live the I am not life is that we have to accept our limitations. I am not God. I, I mean, I I don't know about you, I I was sort of raised during the ethos of the mantra, you can be whatever you want. False, I cannot be whatever I want. I will never be like Mike. I am six feet tall, have a very average jumper, have almost no vertical leap. I will never be, I won't even be like Scottie Pippen. it's just, we, and neither will you probably. Like, we, we will not be, we cannot be whatever we want to be. And I think we've carried that type of mindset into all sorts of areas that it was never designed to be. But that, that's a whole nother aside that I don't have time for today. But I think that recognition of I have limits is so freeing. It's freeing as a parent to know that I am called to be my, par- my kid's dad. I am not called to be their God. I'm called to be a good friend, but I cannot control the way that my friends respond to me. I'm called to be the best pastor that I can become. And I'm trying to do that, but I, I can't control the way that God moves and works. Like, here's the bottom line. I am not, and neither are you. And part of being human is embracing our limitations. So we've said, I am not together, but I think it would just probably be really good for us to say, I have limits together. So let's just say it. I have limits. I have limits. So do you. So does John. But I think what John does is he does whatever he can, trusting that in all of his limitations, God is going to show up and he's going to make much of himself. And so much of our frustration in life is built around trying to coerce and control things that are outside of the ability for us to control. He's like, I baptize with water. (laughs) And it's just water. But luckily, there's one coming who baptizes with spirit. And he says, and even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals, I am not, what? Worthy Worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So he goes, I am a voice, I am baptizing, and I am unworthy. Remember, remember, the transformation that we long for is built around looking at God, looking at self, looking at God, looking at self. He looks at God. And then he looks at himself and he goes, I'm not worthy. Hey, I, I'm not even worthy to, to get down and, and untie and retie his sandals. And, and I think what John is doing is he's saying, like, if you want to really embrace this life, this life, the I am not life, well, you've got to recognize your need. Like, you can't beat your chest and go, I am not. It doesn't work that way. We have to recognize our need for Jesus. I'm reminded of of people that encounter Jesus, people like Peter. He's in the boat with Jesus, and Peter comes to this realization of who he is in light of who God is. And he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And I believe that there's a sense in every genuine believer that they've been invited to a party that they just simply don't belong at. And John is just seeing himself accurately in light of seeing God accurately. And he's going, I am not worthy. I am in desperate need. And I just love the biting irony of John saying, I shouldn't even be able to get down and untie his sandals and in 13 chapters, that same I am whose sandals John is unable to untie will be on his hands and his knees washing the feet of the disciples. But John goes, yeah, I'm, I'm unworthy and I am in desperate Need And the beauty of all of this is I am not positions us to receive what Jesus is pouring out. Because true life can be received when I am not meets the great I am. And that's exactly what happens in John's story. So the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes Away the sin of the world. And John takes all of this focus that these religious professionals are putting on him and he holds up a mirror and he deflects it back to Jesus and he goes, No, 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 it is not about I am the I am, but that is the great I am, I am, I am not. That is the great I am. And I don't know about you, but John has just said, I'm unworthy. And then Jesus comes toward him. And you may have walked into these doors this morning thinking, I'm unworthy. And here's what I wanna tell you. Jesus is coming straight towards you also. Because somewhere along the way in this mashup of Christendom that we live in, we've gotten the idea that God, that, that Jesus cannot be around sin and he cowers at sin. And it turns out that Jesus comes towards sinful, needy people just like you and just like me. In fact, God comes to us before we ever consider coming to him. Like Jesus is a lamb of God coming toward John and he's a lamb of God who's coming towards you also. And we could spend days talking about this one verse Um, but there's just a few things that I want we're not going to do that just in case you were like "Uh oh wasn't ready for that Um, just, just a few things I want to point out one Jesus is the lamb he's not a lamb Jesus takes away sin he does not take away sins meaning he goes for the root he doesn't address just the fruit issues See, John points to the one who can do what he cannot do for himself but knows he desperately needs done. John tells us in no uncertain terms, Jesus takes away sin. Jesus is confronting the deepest problems that we have. And he's meeting our deepest needs and our deepest brokenness and our deepest pains and our deepest hurts. See, if you were to do an experiment tonight and you were to go on um, whatever different news uh, stations you watch uh, and you were to listen to all the different things that are going on in the world today, my guess is that you would hear absolutely zero stations mention sin as an issue. And yet I would suggest to you that the scriptures make really clear that sin is at the root of all the evil and pain that we face. Death, sickness, division, war, famine, it all finds its inception in sin. So let me say it another way. If you subtracted sin from the world, you would have heaven on earth. So Jesus comes and he addresses the deepest, most prominent problem that you and I face. And John points at him and goes, he's a lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this idea of Jesus being the lamb has Old Testament just like layers underneath it. I mean, it should stir up in us sort of images of um, Abraham going to sacrifice Isaac, and there's a ram in the thicket that's a substitutionary sacrifice so that Abraham doesn't sacrifice his son. Or um, the Passover lamb that was killed, and the blood of the lamb that was put over the doorposts of every Israelite family so the angel of death passed over them. Or Isaiah, who's prophesying about the suffering servant who would come. And he describes him as he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb lamb that was led to a slaughter. And like a sheep sheep that was before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. John makes it clear that Jesus, the Lamb of God, in no veiled or enigmatic terms has come to take away the sin of the world. And the fact that he's a lamb taking it away means that he's doing so by means of self-sacrifice. See, Jesus takes away sin by taking it upon himself. He takes our sin, our shame upon himself and he buries it in the grave to rise with new life in his hands. He provides sacrificial forgiveness. And when we know we're not, we can come to terms with the fact that we need forgiveness. See, see if you hold on to the selfie stick and you're like this is about me, then you have to save yourself. You've got to be good enough. You've got to accomplish enough. You've got to achieve enough. That hole that you dug, you've got to dig yourself out of. But when you embrace, I am not, but I have met the great I am, you can then receive forgiveness. You can then receive hope. You can then receive healing. And I'm struck by the fact that when John points at Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God who forgives the sin of the world, he takes it away. He's actually, that word takes away in the Greek is in the present tense. Meaning, He's always taking it away. Right now, he's taking it away. So I don't, I don't know what you brought in these doors, but I do know somebody who who's taking away sin. His name is Jesus. Will you lower your inhibitions enough to come to him and say, "Will you take away my sin"? And I love that takes away is in the present tense because I think God wants us to continually not just know that Jesus forgives sins, but experience him forgiving sins. Because here's the deal. It is way different to know that God is forgiving than it is to experience his forgiveness. And some of you are here today to experience the beauty and joy and peace of his forgiveness, maybe for the very first time. One of the most moving art pieces that, that I've seen is um, Matthias Grunewald's Isenheim Altarpiece. I believe it was painted in the 16th century. But one of the unique parts about this painting is that we know, we know historically that John the Baptist wasn't present at the crucifixion he was beheaded before jesus was crucified and and yet gruenwald paints him in the bottom right of this painting he paint you can see it's john the baptist cuz he has a, a lamb at his feet and the lamb's carrying a cross and he's pointing at jesus behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world and i love that that this painting makes it clear that when John points at Jesus walking towards him, he's essentially pointing to the cross. The, the moment in time where God would definitively con- declare, you can trust me because I love you. You may not understand my hand and what I'm doing, but you can trust my heart because I've given my life for you. I've forgiven you. I've redeemed you. I've saved you. I call you my own. You're safe with me. Come to me. Come to me. And it's in that moment that we can go, oh, I am not, but I'm forgiven by the great I am who gave himself for me in love. Thank you, Jesus. My identity is not grounded in my perfection or my performance. It is grounded in his love and in his forgiveness. And that means that I can have the courage to approach God both in weakness and in confidence both in weakness and in confidence here's um, one final way that john the baptist points us to the great i am here's what he says verse 30 this is he of whom i said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. I love this, I myself did not know him. I think John's telling us, this has been a journey for me. To get to the point where I point at Jesus and say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I wasn't there when I started, but I am there now. And and I just love how humble John is. Because it might be a journey for you too. It is a journey for you. And I love that we can relate to, Even some of the heroes of the faith going, yeah, I wasn't always there, but now I see clearly. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove. And it remained on him or abided on him. Now, really interesting that the spirit comes down like a dove. I don't have time today to go into this, but this is your weekly reminder that John is telling a recreation story. There was another dove that's prominent in the scriptural story. Right after the flood, there's a dove that comes. John just wants us to make all these connections, but we don't have time. Verse 33. I myself do not know him. There he is again, humble John. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain or abide, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So so notice that we have a dove descending on a lamb. Now, if I were to ask you to depict God in animals, my guess is we wouldn't inherently choose a dove and a lamb. We would choose like an eagle and a tiger. (laughs) But the Messiah is unlike what we would expect. He's gentle He's humble in heart. He says, come to me, bring all your burdens, come to me. I'm gentle, I'm humble in heart. I care about you. We just read John's very obtuse story about Jesus's baptism. It's more clear in Matthew's Gospel, But John's point is that during his baptism, the spirit comes on Jesus, descends on him and remains, he tells us twice, stays on Jesus. And then because the spirit stays on Jesus, Jesus is then able to baptize not with water, but with that same spirit that descended on him. See, the same spirit that empowers Jesus is the spirit that empowers his followers. That spirit, he's our advocate. He's our helper. He's with us forever. He bears witness to us about the words of Jesus. He guides us into truth. He empowers us. He gives us authority to walk in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. See, this is the second I am that John makes. I am of, uh, I, I, or sorry, the second I am that Jesus is. He's the He is the Lamb of God and He is the one baptizing, and He gives His powerful spirit to His I am not followers. (laughs) But just like we talked about with forgiveness, we have to be open to it, we have to receive it, we have to ask for it. So too with the Spirit that He's pouring out, He's not going to force Himself on us, you guys. He's not going to say, no, you you will take my spirit. He's not going to do that. In fact, Jesus would say, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He's going to give the spirit to those who ask. So this idea of baptizing with spirit, once again, present tense, it's happening, continually happening. Are you open to receive it? Are you open to receive his power? Are you open to receive his forgiveness? Or are you pacing back and forth in a life you've designed, but one you weren't designed for? Selfie stick in hand going, this is all about me. And if that's you, you're unable to receive what Jesus is pouring out. So I just wanna encourage you, would you open up your heart? Would you open up your heart to him today? The section ends with John saying, And I have seen and borne witness that this, pointing at Jesus, is the Son of God. He ends where he began, bearing witness about Jesus, God's one and only Son. And as he points at Jesus, he's teaching us that our life's purpose is found in pointing to Jesus. He's the center of the universe, Will you posture your heart and soul before him to say, I want you to shine through me. I wanna raise my voice to declare your goodness and your grace. I wanna recognize my need and receive your forgiveness, you taking away my sin. I wanna trust your power, not my own power. Would you once again fill me with your spirit? Because I just fear that too many of us were pacing back and forth in this cage that we've created called life. Selfie stick in hand and the great eye on display, longing to protect our turf, be up and to the right all the time. And I just wonder if Jesus today wants to meet us and say there's so much freedom in just embracing the I am not life. And then to receive his forgiveness and his spirit Will you, will you posture your heart before him and say, I am not? But gosh, you're the great I am. And I long to receive all that you are pouring out into my life. So as we close, let me just invite you to um, look up at the screens and just maybe just ask Jesus, which of these pictures best epitomizes my life? Is it, is it the, the self-focused, pacing back and forth? Me, 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 I, I, I. Or is it, Jesus, this is about you. I wanna raise my voice. I wanna accept my limits. And I wanna posture myself to receive your forgiveness. Which best pictures your life? Let me just give you a moment. And just ask that the spirit would speak to you. He's pouring it out even now. Ask him to speak to you. If there's anything he just stirs up in in your heart and soul, I just want to invite you to bring it before him confess, repent believe that the way is being made straight in front of you but you've got to want to walk so would you just once again say to Jesus I am not, you're the great I am Lord Lord um, we would come before you and ask that you, by the power of your spirit, would just do surgery in our hearts. The pieces that are there that aren't of you, would, by the power of your spirit, would you just remove those? God, cleanse us, sanctify us, make us, make us new. the pieces of, of that capital S self that we're holding to and trying to defend? Did you just point them out to us so that we can repent and confess and turn and walk and follow you? Jesus, thank you for coming toward us before we were ever moving toward you, coming toward us in forgiveness, coming toward us in love, coming toward us with power and spirit that you long to pour into our lives. Thank you. Thank you. That the life that you designed us to live is the life that you empower us to live and it's the life that is truly, Life, Thank you. Lamb of God, who's taken away our sin. The great I am. It's all about you. So a thousand hallelujahs and a thousand more. Great are you, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org/give.